We're reading from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to um, 5, chapter 10, a verse 10. <clears throat> it's entitled, Jesus, the Great High Priest. <clears throat> Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in need of time. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honour for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what, what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of etern- eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then we turn to chapter 12, verses 1 to 11. <clears throat> Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. 
For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So Psalm 6, and as it tells us in the heading for this psalm, it's to the choir master with stringed instruments according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. So it's not just a prayer, it's also a song. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me from the, for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my groaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God. As we sang right at the very beginning, we ask that you speak to us. And so, Lord, as we read your word, we hear you speaking to us. And this morning, we hear you speaking to us through your servant, David. And we ask, Lord, that as we reflect on his circumstances, on his cry and plea to you, that we ourselves will be able to reflect on our own journey and think about our own cries and pleas to you. That as we do this this morning, Father, we ask that you speak into our lives by your truth so that we might be changed and transformed and so that we might have a mind of David, a mind of Jesus, in response to the hardship and difficulties of life as we come to you in prayer. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you like with emotion? Now, if I was going to go, okay, ladies, what do your husbands like with emotion? And then, ladies, what are your men like with emotion? Now, your men, what are your ladies like with emotion? You might give me two completely different responses. But emotions are an integral part of our godly design. I mean, we are emotional because that's the way we were made. Some emotions we bridle. We might bridle our fear or our tears or even our joy at times. And some we allow free reign, like anger and frustration. 
And then we might give free rein to our tears and our joy and our fear. For most of us, our levels of emotional expression are done in accordance with cultural acceptability. So what's okay for a girl is not okay for a guy. Or what's okay in the sports stadium is not okay at church. Or what's okay for us at home is not okay for us at the office. And sometimes that's true and sometimes it's just not true, but we give in to certain cultural expectations. Even the church, our denomination, can influence what emotions are encouraged and what are not, what are expressed freely and what are barely seen. Um, As I say that, Many years ago, I was listening to a, um, a guy speak of, and he was a Christian comedian engaging in a local church. And he had a guy come up to him afterwards and thanked him for his routine and everything, and it was very humorous and engaging and touching. And he said to him, with the grumpiest face ever, I've been a Christian for uh, 36 years, and it's been great. And the Christian comedian said to him, well, tell your face. So... You know, sometimes our, our very church upbringing can influence, in a sense, the lack of emotional joy that we express for our, the life that we live with Jesus. There are emotions connected with all sorts of things. There's emotion connected with confidence as well as uncertainty, admiration as well as revulsion, surprise as well as panic, gratitude as well as anger. Some of these themselves are emotions, joy as well as in, and sorrow, jubilation and grief, relief and frustration, happiness and sadness, laughter and tears, love and hate, hope and fear. What are you like with emotion? Do you keep your guard up or do you let yourself go? Do you wear your heart on your sleeve? Do you open up or do you remain in control? Do you express yourself to God or do you remain reserved? And with our last one, why don't we let our guard down with God? Open up, express ourselves. After all, he knows our thoughts and our hearts. But, you know, I've been in prayer meetings and some people just pray with a sort of, what would you call it, monotonous orthodoxy without any expression of emotion at all. Now, that doesn't mean everybody's weeping all the time, but we can pray with joyfulness as well as broken hearts. This psalm, this song, this prayer of David's, is an open, honest, and raw, is open and honest and raw with emotion. And Derek Kidner, in his commentary on the Psalms, said that it gives words to those who scarcely have a heart to pray, and brings them within sight of victory. It gives them words. It gives words to those who scarcely have a heart to pray, and brings them within sight of victory. So it's refreshing and liberating, 
especially for us guys, to know that the King of Israel, God's appointed and anointed leader, the man after God's own heart, flooded his couch, his bed, with tears. But let's see what's going on in David's heart, which promoted this emotional plea to God. Well, in verses 1 to 3, what we see is a plea for mercy. In verses 1 to 3, we see a plea for mercy. In these first verses, David opens up for us the agony he's going through, an agony that brings anguish to his soul. In verse 2, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing or anguishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. Verse 3, my soul also is greatly troubled. The very core of his being is affected by what's going on. And in verse 1, it seems to suggest that David's conscience is uneasy, that the Lord may well be chastening David for some sin, or he thinks the hardship and difficulty he is under is a form of discipline from the Lord the God who loves him. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. He's asking the question, what's going on here? And this is always one of the questions we should ask ourselves when we face difficulty and hardship of any kind. Is the Lord disciplining me? Is this part of the Lord's discipline of my life because of sin, to grow me in my Christ-likeness. After all, if we are Christians, we are not under judgment for sin anymore, but if we sin, which we do, God may discipline us. He may bring all sorts of circumstances into our life to try and arrest that repeated action of sinfulness, to grow us into the likeness of Christ. After all, that's what Hebrews 12 is all about, and the Lord who does that is the God who loves us. The one who not only sent his son to die, he will do everything to make us into the likeness of his son. In 1 Corinthians 11, which is the passage that we can often read when we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, um, it talks about a correction of people who shouldn't be coming to the Lord's Supper. But in that passage, Paul talks about the reason why some people may be sick And that it's because the Lord is disciplining them for their inappropriate participation in the Lord's Supper. Their inappropriate participation is because they don't even love each other and yet they're coming to celebrate the love of God in Christ at the Lord's Supper without even loving each other as they barge past each other for the food at the meal that they're sharing. God disciplines his people. We're sinners and in his great, God, great love for us, God may well use difficult means to shake us out of our apathy or to wake us to our senses so we might repent and return to him, whatever the circumstances may be. But it's a question, just like David here, who's facing, and it doesn't tell us what his circumstances are, he's facing difficulty, but one of the first questions that he asks is, Are you disciplining me, Lord? Are you angry with me? But whatever the experience and whatever disfavour, whether disfavour from God or sickness or 
the unceasing threat of enemies, whatever God is doing, and obviously David is experiencing this through the effect of enemies in his life, it's an exhausting experience. And David pleads for mercy, for a tempering of God's discipline, for its impacting his whole life, his bones and soul are not just in anguish, in agony or anguish, literally they're terrified. He fears for his life in the circumstances that he's in. Have you ever known this level of anguish? That is, whatever you're going through, it doesn't have to be enemies, but are you gone through a circumstance where it just feels so overwhelming, it's affecting every part of your life and almost feels like if it keeps going, I might just die. I don't know whether I had the same fear, but certainly the level of exhaustion for me, for those who don't know, four years ago, nearly four years ago, my wife passed away from motor neurons disease. Leading up to that, we'd just moved to Canberra and we were beginning to settle into ministry in the church in Canberra when my wife's condition uh, became undeniable and we had to then, in a sense, abandon ministry and I had to care for her as she slowly declined. But that brought me into a journey that I'd never experienced before. Anybody who's been through grief, um, to go through it twice would be awful. Uh, It's a journey that we don't see. Proverbs 3, don't trust in your own understanding when you're going into grief. How on earth will you know what it's like? I didn't know what it was like. It was crushing, it was overwhelming, it was relentless. Um, It's only sort of three and a half years into it that I've begun to feel a bit more normal, having returned to, having finished ministry in Canberra and returning to Wollongong. Um, But there are times when I felt the absolute exhaustion as David was expressing in every part of my body and needing God's mercy. And during that time, I had all sorts of questions. I mean, the Lord was sovereign about taking Helen to be with him, but, you know, what was the Lord doing with me? Is there a discipline in this? My own sin was brought before my eyes. What is God doing? And David needs God to be merciful to him. And he wants to know in verse 3, how long? During these last three and a half years, I've also wanted to know how long. Um, it's different for everybody, but it's been a relentless journey for me. This psalm speaks into my life in a way that I didn't realise before. Um, how long will you allow this to go on? Why don't you intervene and give relief? Why does God wait? One of the worst sections of sea in the world is a small section of sea between the bottom of South America and Antarctica called Drake's Passage. It really only takes 48 hours to cross in bad weather and less in good weather, but it can have 12-metre seas. 
and it can have winds that just don't stop. For the newcomer, it can be a relentless journey, bombarded by waves, exhausting, filled with uncertainty, even though we have modern ships today, but imagine the journey when the ships weren't so modern. The unceasing pounding. And just even though it takes 24 hour, uh, 48 hours today, being in your cabin, sick, going, how long is this going to take? During his last painful illness, John Calvin uttered no word of complaint, but would often raise his eyes heavenward and say in Latin, and I can't say this in Latin, I can only say it in English, he said, Lord, how long? How long? Suffering is exhausting. Even the loving discipline of God can be emotionally draining. Even though it's maturing us in faith or part of God's sovereign purposes, well, it is part of God's sovereign purposes, we often don't know why and when it will stop. And so we want to know how long. So what can we do? Well, we can do the one thing God has given us to do at all times. We can come to him in prayer. Even Jesus in Gethsemane, as he's in the garden, about to go to the cross, is pleading with God for mercy to take this cup of suffering from him. We can plead for mercy. We can plead for his grace. We can plead Christ who has gone before us. He has endured suffering. He has come to God with tears, as we read in Hebrews. He knows what it's like for us. And we can plead Jesus. And we can plead to him. And we can plead his saving work. We can plead our relational status in him with God, asking Jesus to intercede on our behalf as we pour out our struggle before God. We can do what David does at the beginning. We can plead for mercy in the face of ongoing suffering. And having begun with a plea for mercy, in verses 4 to 7... David offers a cry for deliverance. One of the things I like about this psalm, I have a Presbyterian background. I'm, my name's Scottish. Um, but I think it's equally same for Dutch people, and I don't know how many other cultures around the world. Stoicism, that is being a stiff upper lip, stoic, resolved sort of person. This psalm is almost an affront to a stoic person's life. I don't need to plea for mercy. I don't need to cry for deliverance. I just need to keep persevering. And I would say to you, that's an incredibly ungodly approach because it's trusting in our own understanding. It's trusting in our own resilience. It's trusting in our own energies and efforts rather than pleading to God and crying out to him. And so here we have a cry for deliverance in verses 4 to 7. In his prayer, though it's from a man whose body is faint and his soul is in anguish, 
His cry for deliverance is not a rambling list of wishful thoughts or good ideas that God should consider. Rather, God, David calls God to turn to his need to deliver him, to save him, and does so with true and real arguments as to why God should do this. Arguments that flow from his relationship with God. In verse 4, David cries out to God for deliverance on the basis of God's unfailing love. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. That is, in Hebrew, his chesed love, his loving kindness, his promised covenant love that promises never to let us go. It's the love that's expressed by Paul in Romans chapter 8, a love that's in and through Christ Jesus. David pleads this same thing in 2 Samuel 22 when he says that Yahweh is the tower of deliverance for his king, the one who keeps acting in devoted chesed love toward his anointed. David is pleading the character of God. He could paraphr- if we could paraphrase these words, we'd say, save me for you have pledged yourself to deal lovingly with me and I'm holding you to your word. It's not an ungodly thing to do. It's actually saying, you've promised to love me. Are you abandoning me? Where we might go, no, I know you're not abandoning me, but deliver me from this suffering for the sake of your love so that people will see your love for your people. The second element in these verses, in verse 5, not only is David appealing uh, or crying for deliverance on the basis of God's love, he also does so on the basis of God's deserved praise. Praise that cannot be given from the grave. For in death there is no remembrance of you in Sheol who can give you praise. In a sense, David is saying, you deserve praise. You're the Lord God Almighty. But if you let me die, there will be one less to sing your praises and to worship you. Seems a bold thing to say, but David understands that the fundamental purpose of his life is to praise his God. If you you were asked, what's the problem with death, what would your answer be? Maybe it, it cuts short the life that I thought I'd live. Maybe you might go, it reminds us that we, that the world is still under the judgment for sin, under judgment for sin. Or would you say the problem with death is that I wouldn't be able to praise God at home? That's not, I mean, we'll be in glory, we'll be praising God, but I won't be able to praise God on this earth, at home or on my walks or with my brothers and sisters in Christian worship. Our very election before time our adoption through Christ, as Paul says in Ephesians 1 verses 3 to 6, is for the praise of his glorious grace. Our very salvation is to praise and glorify God. 
God doesn't save you so you can have a better life. Sometimes that's the way we talk about salvation with other people. You know, turn to Jesus so you can have a better life. Well, that's not the way it works. Turn to Jesus so he can be glorified in his saving work in you. He saves you for the sake of his name. So our new and transformed lives might be a living testimony to his glory and grace. Jesus shed his blood and died with the judgment and agony for our sins so that our redemption and forgiveness and justification and salvation in Christ might be for the glory and praise of God. This is why we worship and praise together because this is what we were saved for and why David cries out to God for deliverance. And so if God is going to deliver him on the basis of his love or on the basis of his praise, David adds a third element and he cries for deliverance on the basis of his emotional exhaustion. In verses 6 to 7, the groaning, the grief, the tears of a broken man are beyond self-help or good advice. The hoard of his personal resources have all but finished. He has nothing left He's in desperate need. Even his foes no longer rouse his spirit, but leave him more crushed. Do you know, have you ever had this depth of exhaustion where every hardship and difficulty seems to crush you further? There's no sense of resilience or rebounding. It's just down and down and down where you're overwhelmed by every little issue or trouble or uncertainty or even attack of the evil one and you're left weeping and crying and doubting and struggling, nights and days with tears. Or am I just talking about myself? When we're really young, some of this stuff you go, I don't understand, what are you talking about? If we live long enough, somebody said once, you know, if you live long enough, you're going to suffer. And you go, everybody who's living over 40 is probably going, amen. Um, But these are the realities that when we suffer, it can be exhausting. And for those who are suffering, can I make an appeal on base of my own experience? Don't offer quick pick-me-up solutions. Some people think, oh, you know, all this suffering, oh... If you just do this, you'll be better. No. We're in a point where almost nothing seems to help. It's not a quick pick-me-up solution. Or Bible verses going, oh, this is the verse they need to hear, and you give them a Bible verse, and you go, well, thanks, but um, I don't even know how to process that Bible verse. What we need is to offer support and patience and encouragement in Christ as people go through suffering, for it's exhausting. For if this is part of God's loving discipline, one of God's sovereign trials, through whatever means he chooses, then he's looking to either break our stubbornness or correct our waywardness or change our apathy or transform our hardness, like David in Psalm 32, or to grow our faith and trust and dependence on his love and promises, bringing us to a point of confession and need. It's not a good thing that the minister keeps per- speaking personally, but one of the things that happen, has happened for me through this journey of grief and hardship 
is to deal with the question of trust. Do I really, did I really trust in God or did I trust in God as well as my wife? And when my wife was taken away, what did my trust in God really look like? I've said to other people, we talk about trust when we've got another hand full of personal resources. But when you take those away, what does the hand of trust in God look like? How active is that really? In my journey, that's been part of the challenge for me, as God has been rebuking me through my journey of grief about what I really practiced about trusting in him. But when we reach that point of confession and need, when we come to the realisation that maybe through all of this, we desperately need to grow in an area, when we reach that point, it may then be that God will keep that... um, It may then be God's will that we keep trusting him even through the hardship. And like Joseph in prison or Jesus in the garden, we look to the perfect will of God for our peace and deliverance. So having cried, having pleaded with God for mercy and cried to him for deliverance, David ends his prayer in verses 8 to 10 in some way miraculously with a confession of assurance. In these verses, David confesses the confidence he has with God. There may be areas of his life God is working on, disciplining him, but there are also his enemies who are in the mix. And with certainty of his relationship with God and his anointed position as king, he declares judgment on his enemies, all who defy him, all who serve as accusing agents of Satan. And he asserts his power as king to purge his realm of of mischief makers with the confidence that God has heard his prayer. And David speaks with faith. For the victory is yet to come, but he knows that he is answered. We know that the victory that he's speaking of is the victory that will come with Christ. Ultimately, when Christ returns, when all wickedness and evil is judged and done away with in hell and all of God's people are taken into glory. David speaks with a confidence of trust in the promises of God. And he says in verse 9, The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. And our reading in Hebrews reminds us that Jesus prayed with tears and was heard, our great high priest. And we can have this confidence that God hears our prayers because of Jesus interceding for us at God's right hand. All of which that David goes through has been fulfilled perfectly in Christ. And the confidence we have in the expulsion of our enemies in the victory over our foes is because of Jesus. When we pray to God, we need to know our God, what his character is like and what our relationship with him is like. David knew that through God, all who stand in opposition to him, who stand in judgment over him for his predicament, whatever it might be, all who oppose God's anointed will be turned back in disgrace 
they'll be ashamed. For God will prove his faithfulness to his children. God hears the weeping of his children. He saves and delivers them in Christ. And brothers and sisters, I can't stop wiping my nose, that is our confidence. That is our great confidence and assurance that even through the darkest times and the struggles, we can pray the same as David. We can express confident assurance that whatever we're going through will be turned on its head through Christ's victory. Well, how much emotion do you express? How much emotion do you express with God? Do you plead with him? Do you cry to him? Do you express your assurance in him? As I said earlier, if we live long enough, we will suffer. In life we suffer. Sometimes just because we live in a sinful world and sometimes because we are standing for Christ and sometimes because in God's sovereign works, he wants to grow our faith through trials and sometimes as a result of God's loving discipline of us because of sin. All of which are under his sovereign plan and will. This may be emotionally exhausting, but don't resist it. Rather repent, confess, turn afresh to God, plead for God's mercy, cry for his deliverance. Confess your assurance through Christ Jesus and rest in his eternal love for you in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, forgive us when we try to keep control of our own lives rather than letting ourselves go before you. Here in this psalm, David has reached a point in his life where the assault that he is going through, whatever that struggle is, whatever the discipline you're bringing or working in his life is through the enemies that he is facing, has brought him to his knees before you. He is empty and in need of your mercy and in need of your saving grace. Father, there are times we will all face in different ways that may even reflect what David is going through. So Lord, help us to learn from his experience, but not just him, to learn from the one who is the one who perfectly fulfilled David, which is your son, the Lord Jesus, the true king, the great high priest, the one himself who cried to you, who wept with tears, who pleaded for your mercy, and yet with trust in your promise of salvation was willing to give up his life for our salvation to give up his life in our place so that we might be saved. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on Christ and to follow in his example and to come before you in prayer, trusting in his interceding work with all the emotion that we might have. But help us do so in the knowledge of our true and sure relationship with you through Jesus. Father, Forgive us for our self-reliance and help us to be people who trust in you.
And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.